Good morning, Christwalk Church. How's everybody doing this morning? So good to see all of you. Thank you so much for the way that you just leaned in to worship this morning. I believe the presence of the Lord is here in this place and that he's going to continue um, what he's already begun and to move in our hearts and lives uh, here today. If you got your Bible, you got a smart device, why don't you turn with me or swipe with me um, to the New Testament. We're going to land in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, we'll be there in chapter 2 in just a minute. But today we are in part 3 of a series that we're calling First Comes Love, Then Comes Blank. And the series takes a cue from the rhyme that we used to say as kids. You know, Blake and Sarah sitting in a tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes a baby in a baby carriage. And for this series, we're specifically focusing on the then comes marriage part. By taking a look at the marriage vows that couples make, we're looking at those vows through the lens of Scripture in order to uncover four key principles that can help us to establish loving, Christ-centered relationships. And uh, a few weeks ago in part one, um, we talked about the vow uh, that we say, I take you to be my husband, or I take you to be my wife. And we discussed how first comes love, then comes sacrifice. And in part two, we talked about the vow that we take to have and to hold, to love and to cherish. And that first comes love, then comes gentleness. And um, I'm humbled by the uh, testimony that several of you have shared with me over the past couple weeks of how these messages, the, uh, this series has impacted um, your relationships even, um, even now and some of the decisions that you have been making and uh, the differences that that's been made uh, in, in your relationship. And so I'm excited about that. Thank you so much. Um, that is a, um, a very honoring thing. It's also a very terrifying thing to think that the things that I would say here on a Sunday morning leads to um, decisions being made and life change um, in the people of our congregation. But it is a very honoring um, thing to this pastor. If you missed um, either of those messages, you want to catch up, you can do so um, anywhere you listen to podcasts or you can go and um, watch on our YouTube channel. But um, for this morning, we're continuing on in part three. And um, in, in our vows, we say, I take you to be my husband or my wife, to have and to hold, to love and to cherish. And the next part that usually comes, the next vow that we say is for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. And the key word that we see here along with this section of the vows that we make is humility. First comes love, then comes humility. I once saw a wedding where the minister asked the groom, will you take this woman to be your wife, to have and to hold, to love and to cherish for better or worse, for richer or poorer in sickness and in health? To which the groom replied, yes, no, yes, no, no, yes. See, there's some, there's some problems when we, we look our future mate into their eyes and, and we say that vow to them, talking about for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. And the first one of those problems is that we generally, when it comes to humility, we generally view ourselves as humble. Like, I'm the most humble person that I know. You don't believe me? Just ask. I'll tell you all about it, right? Like, that's kind of how we think in our minds. 
And, and the second problem that we run into here is that, that in that moment when we're standing there up in front of the, the crowd that has gathered with the minister or the officiant and everything, we, we aren't thinking as we're saying those vows. We're not thinking or processing the seasons ahead of mental health battles. We're not considering future job layoffs or financial emergencies that will arise. We're not worried in that moment about the doctor's report of cancer or Alzheimer's. You know, in fact, we'd like to think that that stuff only happens to other people, that it's never going to happen to us. But then the question becomes when it does happen to us. And when those are the very real experiences that we have in our marriages, how are we going to respond? And the call this morning is that we respond in humility. We respond in humility. Humility defined as simply a modest opinion or estimate of one's own importance or rank, etc. And in our passage for today, Paul points us to Jesus as the primary example of what humility looks like and underscores the reasons, benefits, and principles for assuming and operating within an attitude and mindset of humility in our marriages. Philippians 2, we pick up with verse 1. You've turned there, swipe there. You can read along with me. Paul writes, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Verse 3, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Verse 5, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Now it's in this passage that Paul is advocating humility, namely concern for the needs of others, not just one's own needs, as the basis not only for unity within the church, but unity within our marriages. This church largely is made up of a lot of people that are in marriage relationships. And it, it is our call, it is our duty as married couples that our relationship with our spouse should reflect the relationship that Christ has with his church. And as someone once said, they, they said, love begins when someone else's needs are more important than my own. This is the pattern and the example of Jesus, and it is the pattern and example that you and I are to adopt in our married relationships. That love begins when someone else's needs take the precedent. They become more important than my own needs. And so if you're taking notes, maybe you want to write this down. We're going to talk about five areas to cultivate humility in our relationship. Five areas to cultivate humility in our relationships. First one of those areas is that we need to be humble in 
purpose. We need to be humble in purpose. Going back to our passage in verses 1 and 2, Paul asks the questions, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Paul reminds us in these opening verses of this chapter of the reasons you and I have to be humble, to embrace humility in our relationships. He gives us these reasons. He says, number one, because you belong to Christ. Like he could have stopped there. Like that's enough. You should be humble because you belong to Christ. But then he continues and says, because you find comfort from his Love And so out of that comfort, you are able to meet the needs of, to show love to, to comfort other people in humility. He continues, he says, another reason to be humble and to embrace humility is because you have fellowship with Jesus and with other believers in the spirit. And finally, because he has made your hearts tender and compassionate toward other people. That's really what the basis of humility is, is that we see the needs of other people and then we take on the choice or the attitude that we want to come alongside and help to meet those needs. I'll talk more about that attitude here in just a moment. But the reason that humility is so important, the reason why it is a, a key pillar uh, for our marriage relationships is because humility fosters unity. Humility fosters unity. And, and, and we talk about mar marriage is a union. It is between husband and wife where the two become one flesh. That is God's orchestrated design for marriage. And we glorify God no greater in no greater way in our marriages than when we are fully united, husband and wife together. And, and notice the language that Paul uses here. He, he says, each other, one another, together with one mind. These evoke the fact that we are to be united together as husband and wife. And there's three particular areas that we are to seek this unity that Paul kind of underscores here. The first one of those is, is unity of, of head. This will make sense in just a second, so just like track with me for a minute. Head, he says, agreeing with each other, right? And so these could be in areas like our finances or parenting or maybe what you're going to have for dinner, right? Nobody can ever agree on that. That's like the age-old debate. You know, honey, what's, what's for dinner? I don't know. What do you want? I don't know. What do you want? Right? We might not be able to get that one right, but, but in the other areas of our life, like we can, we can be unified in our head and our thoughts and our mindset towards one another, and we can agree with each other in how we're going to conduct these different aspects of our marriage relationships. Not only are we to seek uh, unity in our heads, but also in our hearts. Paul says, loving one another. This would include things like romantic pursuit of your spouse. Like just because you got married doesn't mean you stop dating, right? Just because that period of your life is over. Now that you've, men, now that you've won the prize, continue to pursue your wife. All the days of your marriage, that will make a difference. So romantic pursuit of your spouse, caring for their needs physically, 
emotionally and spiritually. That's how we show love to the other person. We seek unity in head, we seek unity in heart, and then finally we seek unity with our hands. Paul says he uses the term working together. This would be defined by establishing and keeping a home together. Growing spiritually together in your walk with Christ. Discovering purpose and making a difference by engaging together in ministry. You know, one of the joys of pastoring this church is I get to see so many married couples and then even um, a, a number of them that have, have children that are of a certain age. And I get to watch as each Sunday they come in and they serve together. They're engaged in ministry together. They are a part of, of using the skills, the gifts, the abilities that God has given them. And this is what we are to seek out in our marriage relationships. And if you're unsure of how to go about that, and you're trying to figure out like uh, how to get in where you fit in, we want, we want to help you. We have this thing called Discover Track here. So shameless plug for just a moment. Um, it's two parts. Part one is online. It's on demand. You can do it at your leisure. Part two takes place on the third Sunday of every month. In fact, right now, as we speak over in the office, um, there's some people that are completing part two of Discover Track with Pastor Trevor this morning. But it's a kind of a 30,000 foot view of the church. And then it whittles down and shows you the different ways that you can discover the God given purpose on your life and how you can fulfill that purpose and begin making a difference. You can find out all the information that you need for Discover Track on our website or simply stop by the Next Steps tent um, at the close of service and someone can point you in the right direction. But we first begin by showing humility in our purpose. Number two, the second area that we need to figure out humility, that we need to cultivate humility in our relationships is not only in our purpose, but also in our perspective in our perspective picking up in verse three through five paul writes don't be selfish don't try to impress others be humble thinking of others as better than yourselves don't look out only for your own interest but take an interest in others too you must have the same attitude that christ jesus had See, perspective is, is simply how we choose to look at something. It is, it's the vantage point from which we view something. And when you are in a relationship with someone else, you often see things from different perspectives. And so that's where the breakdown takes place is when you see the relationship different than your spouse sees the relationship, then there are unmet expectations in the middle of that. And that's where hurt and pain come in and, and break down. And then that, that's what causes the rift and, and will ultimately lead to divorce and everything. And so, so Paul's directly speaking against this sort of thing. And he's showing us the way that we can go about getting on the same page in terms of our perspective, in terms of how we view the relationships that we are in. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's the perspective we are to bring to our marriage relationship. That, that if we're going to engage in humility, it's not thinking that, that we are less, but it's thinking of ourselves less. And so that brings up some questions like, from what perspective do you view your marriage? Like if you really thought about it, if, if you were totally honest with yourself, 
Do you view your marriage through the lens of self and selfishness? Like, do you consider, is your default mode to, to think like, well, what's in it for me? And I'm only going to do X, Y, Z if I benefit out of it or, or I'm, I'm leading the way. I'm the one making the decision. I'm wearing the pants in this relationship. And so what I say goes and it's my way or the highway. Is that how we're approaching our relationship? Or do you consider how the actions, decisions, attitudes, and expectations that you have might affect your spouse as well? And realize that you guys, you've got to get on the same page so that you can view things from the same perspective. Which leads to the ultimate question, are you willing to embrace the challenge that Paul issues to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had? Like, I love that he, he just kind of like just drops that in there. But it's like a ton of bricks, like falling in your lap. You must. Have. There's, no, there's no option here. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Here's the attitude that Christ Jesus had. Matthew 20, verse 28. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's his attitude. And if we're going to embrace, if we're going to adopt that attitude, that means that, that when we engage in our marriage relationships, that, that we take the attitude that we are not here to be served, but rather we are here to serve and to give up our life for the person that we have agreed in covenant to do this thing with. That's the only way that it's going to work. But in order for that to happen, we have to see it through the proper perspective humble in purpose humble in perspective number three we've got to be humble in privilege humble in privilege picking up in verse six paul writes though he was god he did not think of equality with god as something to cling to but instead he gave up his divine privileges see privilege is it's a special right or an immunity, or an exemption granted to persons in authority or office to free them from certain obligations or liabilities. And as I was reading this passage, as I was studying, I, I, I thought, like, how often do we justify doing something simply because it's our right to do it? Right? Like, we're not concerned with being righteous, we are concerned with being right, talked last week about how there's very different there, there, there's a big difference there and so we will we'll exercise our authority and, and we'll we'll engage in certain things we'll make certain decisions we will do some certain things simply because we have a right to do it so get out of my way and if we're not careful we can ramrod over our spouse and others in the process but we will justify ourselves because after all we have a right to this or on the flip side of that, how often do we excuse ourselves from participating in something because we simply don't believe that we're obligated to do so? And we'll say, well, well that's not my responsibility. So I don't have to do that. I have my rights over here, and I'm not obligated to do that over there. 
Do you see the breakdown that takes place there? Here's what it says about, about Jesus. In, in, in the beginning of verse 7, the New Living Translation says, instead, he gave up his divine privileges. The English Standard Version says he emptied himself. He emptied himself. It wasn't something that he had to do. It wasn't something that he was obligated to do. He was the son of God. He had a whole bunch of rights and privileges that he was afforded as the son of the living God. But instead, he chose to empty himself. When we travel, sometimes uh, we're, we're, terrible, uh, we're terrible packers whenever we travel. Like some people I, I admire, some people are able to like, they pack to visit a place, right? Sarah and I, we pack to move into a place. It, it's, it's a whole thing. Like, like some people, I'll, I'll see them, they'll go on like a two-week vacation with like a backpack, you know, They've got like a change of underwear and their toothbrush, and that's all that they need. Like, when my family packs, like, you know, we had to get the bigger truck, the bigger SUV and everything, just so that when we went on trips, we'd have a place and we're, we're, for all the stuff. We're packed in like sardines and everything, and like Sarah and I are packing, and, and, and I'm going like, how am I going to find a place for this fourth pair of Jordans that I need to take? <laughs> and she's like, where am I going to put this third ball gown? I don't know. I'm like... Man, we're only going to be gone two days. I don't know how we're going to do this. Right? And sometimes uh, over, over the course of our time together, she, our marriage together, she'll look at me and she'll say, hey, do you have room for this in your suitcase? I can't fit it in mine. Well, that presents a dilemma. Right? Like, am, am, I going to, am I going to disappoint my wife and tell her, no, I'm sorry, honey, you can't bring that thing that you need? No, absolutely not. I'm going to find a way to make it fit because I want to honor her, right? And, and the principle here is, is that we, we can't assume our responsibility to our spouse and carry their burdens or meet their needs if we're only making room for ourselves. See, at some point in our marriage relationship, we got to empty ourselves of our own junk so that we're able to take on their stuff and assume the responsibility that God has given us as their spouse. Proverbs 22, 4 says this. It says, true humility and fear of the Lord lead to riches, honor, and long life. Is that what we want in our marriage relationships? Do we, do we want our marriage relationships to be rich? to be full, to be whole, to be complete, to be satisfying to us? Do we want to, to have relationships that, are, that could be classified as honorable? Do we want our relationships to be designated by longevity? Is this what we desire for our marriages? If so, then the question is, 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 is that what we're set up to attain now, or do there need to be some changes take place? Do we need to start making some room, clearing out our stuff, emptying ourselves so that we have room to deal with the needs and the burdens of our spouse? Because that's what humility is. Humble in purpose, humble in perspective, humble in privilege. Number four, humble in position. Humble in position. Continuing on in verse 7, Paul writes, he, speaking of Jesus, took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. 
slave is a servant, loosely defined. Around here, one of our core values is that servanthood is our posture because we are never more like Jesus than when we serve other people. But at every turn, service and servanthood requires humility, right? And and we go back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 2. God has created Adam and He says, it is not good for man to be alone, so I will create a helper for him. And so first, he starts with all of the animals, and one by one, he brings the animals in front of Adam, and Adam engages and interacts with these these animals, and he he gives them all their names and everything, but, but it said that there still was not a helper suitable for the man. And so, so God puts him into a deep sleep and he out of his side, out of one of his ribs, he creates woman, Eve, to give to the man as a helper that will be suitable for him. We think, oh, I've been, okay, like I'm supposed to be a helper to my spouse, right? But then Jesus comes along and he takes it up a notch. He says, not just a helper, but a servant slave. There's indebtedness there that takes place. And and we're really uncomfortable with this language. Like so much so that that we tend to distance ourselves from it. Now that's not what I signed up for. I'll be a helper, but a servant? No. That's not not what I agreed to. And and so we've we've viewed the vows that we have made to our spouse through through the lens of something that they are not. Because Jesus said that this is, if we're going to, if we're going to pattern our lives after him, that this is who we have to become. This is the posture that we must take. It's not one of just someone who comes alongside to help. It is the the attitude, the mindset, the the posture of one who, who serves. And so because we don't like that, we distance ourselves from it. But I, I can't help but wonder, like, for those of you that are doing it, how's that working out for you? See, here's, here's the difference between helper and servant. A helper helps others when the circumstances are convenient. But a servant serves others when the circumstances are inconvenient. A helper helps people only when they are likable. But a servant serves even those that aren't likable. Sometimes our spouses are not very likable. Sometimes we are not very likable, right? A helper helps when they enjoy the work. But a servant serves even when they dislike the work. A helper helps with a view to obtain personal satisfaction and gratification. But a servant serves even when there is no guarantee of personal satisfaction or gratification. A helper helps with the attitude of merely assisting another. But a servant serves with the attitude of enabling and empowering another. That's the difference. So if you were to take a personal inventory this morning, according to this list, would you consider yourself more of a helper or more of a servant? And then perhaps the bigger question is, would your spouse agree with your assessment? 
And see, it's, it's important to note here before we move on that, that abuse in marriages takes place when both spouses don't fully humble themselves and assume the posture of a servant. That's where the breakdown happens. It's when, when one person views themselves as a helper and the other person views themselves as a servant. That's where abuse starts to take place. So it only works when we take on, when we embrace the attitude, the mindset of Jesus Christ, when we empty ourselves and when we choose to take the position of a servant or a slave and showing honor and humility towards our spouse. That's the only way that it's going to work. We have no other option. You must be humble in purpose, humble in perspective, humble in privilege, humble in position, and finally, Humble in power. Humble in power. Wrapping up this passage, the last part of verse 7 and then verse 8, when he, speaking of Jesus, appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Humble obedience is usually not something that we want to do. It's not that thing that comes natural to us. In fact, it's that thing that oftentimes we, we push back, we kick back against. What humble obedience looks like is it's an active surrender of our power and our will to the power and will of our Heavenly Father. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, Jesus asked for the Father to take the responsibility of the cross away from him. But in that same moment, he also accepted and agreed for the Father's will to be done. That's the example that he set for us. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, we read this. Peter writes, And all of you, dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. What we see here is that humility, it's a choice. When we're talking about exercising our power in our marriage relationship, it is a choice. It's like getting dressed in the morning. Every single person that's here, because none of you are naked, thank God, you got up this morning and chose the outfit that you were wearing. Some of you have had it picked out since last Sunday. Others of you had it laid out last night. Some of you got up and picked something up out of the floor and sniffed it and said, yeah, I can get one more wear out of this. Whatever, how, whichever way you went about it, you chose to dress yourself this morning. In the same way, we can wake up in the morning and we can choose selfishness. Or we can wake up in the morning and we can refuse to put on humility. We can wake up every single morning and we can choose to live in opposition to our spouse. And overlook their needs and their desires. Or... We can wake up in the morning and declare every single day that we're going to push our pride to the side. And instead, we're going to serve our spouse. It's a choice. It's also an attitude. This attitude comes along with seeing our own faults and being willing to admit when we're wrong. 
to have an attitude of humility in our relationships and to exercise that power properly requires both asking for forgiveness from our spouse and granting forgiveness to our spouse whenever a wrongdoing or shortcoming has taken place. And when we choose to have this kind of attitude, we are consciously declaring that nothing is beneath us. And we end up elevating our spouse's worth and value in return. It's a choice. It's an attitude. Perhaps most importantly, it is a reflection of Jesus. Our choosing to clothe ourselves in humility and to serve our spouse makes us a living example of Jesus' humility to them and other people around us who will witness it. And it paints a beautiful picture of the gospel which is exactly what our marriages are to reflect. The message of the gospel is that Jesus used his power not to save himself, but he used his power instead to save you and save me. We have this opportunity in our relationships not to use our power on ourselves, but instead to use our power for the greater benefit of our spouse. That's how we exemplify the pattern and the example of Jesus Christ. So as I close today, what, what area do you need to choose greater humility in your marriage? Is it in your purpose? By cultivating unity in, in your relationship and, and, and starting to work toward a common goal? Or maybe it's in the area of your perspective that you need to begin to consider your relationship with your spouse in view and how decisions and expectations will affect them in the long run. Maybe it's in your privilege that, that you're going to begin to make room for your spouse instead of just for yourself. Perhaps it's your position, your willingness to take the posture of a servant toward your spouse and elevate their needs above your own. Or maybe it's in your power. Every single day, actively declaring and choosing to clothe yourself with humility and surrendering your will to the lead of your Heavenly Father. In just a moment, the band's going to come lead us in worship to seal this word in our hearts. And as they do, I want to invite you, maybe just right there at your seat, perhaps you want to quietly reflect. Listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit, what he's asking you to do, the, the step of action he's wanting you to take. Maybe for those of you, there, there's some people in this room that maybe you're sitting by your spouse and there's been a breakdown in one or more of these areas and you need to take a moment to just grab them by the hand and just have a little moment, you and them and the Lord right here in this place. Allow God to move and bring healing and wholeness to your hearts today. And as always, these altars are open. If you'd like to come forward and receive prayer, you can do that as well. Before the band comes, can we pray together? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the example of your word. We thank you for its truth and its principles, Lord, that point the way for us, showing us how to live. Lord, we recognize that this call to humility is not a simple one. God, we ask that you would help us to embrace it wholeheartedly. 
God, that it would be reflected in every aspect of our relationships, Lord, and that in our marriages that they would reflect the pattern and the example that you have set for us. So that our relationships can be the best that they can be. And that through that example, they would point others in your direction. Lord, I pray that as spouses choose to humble themselves, Lord, that you would bring about new life and new favor, Lord, rekindled sparks, Lord, that there would be a unity unlike any other going to take place, Lord, that you would revive and rejuvenate that which has become dead or grown cold. Lord, as people make these choices to live in accordance with your word, Lord, that you would grant them the fullness of the relationship and marriage that they've always dreamed of. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in hearts and lives today. In Jesus' name we pray these things.